In this episode, we're answering some of our listener questions. We'll be covering company title properties, selling out of a regional location, what is an A-grade property, frustrations with land tax, and how to make space in the market for both first home buyers and investors. Is there room for both? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au All right, Chris, our first question is from Eva. She has written, what are the risks, advantages and disadvantages of company title properties and how do purchasers and valuers put a dollar figure on them? Do company title properties appreciate in capital gains at the same rate as similar strata apartments in the same area or is the lower entry point in the market a red herring? I've seen a few company title properties crop up, not in the lower North Shore or Eastern suburbs, she's talking Sydney here, around Sydney in her search and they seem to be marketed at and selling for lower than strata apartments in the same area. Love the podcast. Thank you very much, Eva. Now, Chris, a big. I will talk about um, some of the aspects of company titles and also the areas in which you find them. Um, but the biggie really is the funding of them, right? That's one of the reasons they're difficult. Why is that? Look, I don't think it is a big issue, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we actually you, so the two biggest lenders, right? Some lenders will definitely not be able to do it because their their funding arrangements won't allow them to have you know things that are off. The, uh, not vanilla right basically and so if you know it's a small apartment or it's a company title or it's a big rural acreage or it's a you know worth more than three million dollars or you know this uh it's a high density apartment etc some banks won't be able to take that type of property on their books because their funding line won't allow them to have certain assets that back that loan book but if you're talking like some of the biggest lenders you know let's say the two biggest ones um the red and the yellow one um you know they they would do it um, even you know the third biggest lender, you know someone another red one would would do it as well. So um, you know it does. It's not such a big deal. I mean sometimes people can't use those banks because of um, policy reasons, and they need to go to other banks to get their money. And you know, but usually they've got the biggest, broadest um, policy. Those two banks as well. So it's very unlikely that you wouldn't be able to get a loan at one of those big lenders. Um, and those lenders would do company title. Now there are some. I'm talking. Would they- would they do one for a first home buyer? Yep, yep. It's not. It's really just their policy. You know, it's a product, their type of property. That security is fine. They don't really then say, "Oh, it's now the person borrowing the money. Um, it's too risky for them to then go and buy this type of property." Um, so they would do it. Look, you do need to check it. Like that's that's absolutely the case. The same as limited title, which is a sort of another um, sort of ownership mm-hmm. um, thing. So. Whenever you get a company title, definitely speak to your broker. Definitely look at the bank that you've got your pre-approval through, whether they would accept it. Because, yes, definitely some lenders won't. But, you know, it's not to say you can't get funding, you know, and it's not to say there are some tricky things. Um, Veronica and I, um, coincidentally, I know we haven't spoken about this before the podcast, but a client we were working on together um, in the past, the owners of that property couldn't get something through council. They tried to get tricky. Um, they did a company title. Um, and they basically did a duplex on a company title and then try to sell it off as two different um, properties. And the bank said, no chance we're going nowhere near this, right? So that's <laughs> like a company title, but it's not a genuine company title like in, a, in a, an apartment block, et cetera. So, you know, I think it is a bit of a myth, you know, that you can't get funding on them and that, you know, maybe it is factored into prices because that myth is out there. Um, but it generally shouldn't be. I think, you know, company titles shouldn't be a problem as long as you've got a good broker and you know where to, to go to get your money. So a bit of the history of why you might find a company title building, and that is because before strata title was invented as a a method of ownership, um, they had to find out a way to actually carve up a building so that people could just purchase a bit of it and and live and operate in their in their lot right and so company title was invented effectively before strata title so you will get older buildings that may have been built before strata title was invented that have not been converted to company title and they they, there's this whole spectrum there's at the lower end of it they 
act they look and act like strata and you know you can you can rent the apartments out cuz there's there's unrestricted company title right up to highly restricted right so at the highly restricted end they will have a board of directors or a board and they will actually interview and vet any potential purchaser coming into that building so you got highly restrictive you'll never be able to rent the property out to the point that they won't they'll even decide whether you can own one or not right um down the other end of the spectrum, as I said, you know that you can easily rent the properties out, et cetera, et cetera. And in the middle of that, uh, there's a building I bought for, I've actually bought for two clients in this building in Elizabeth Bay uh, in recent years. And they've got a bylaw, or I guess you call it, that means that you can't actually rent a property out in the first year of ownership. And so in that particular case, they really do want it. They, they skew more to uh, owner-occupier. So they can actually write rules um, that are more prescriptive and more restrictive than you can with strata. They're governed by different legislation. And so there's all sorts of little complications, which is why you need to have a really experienced conveyancing in that specific area so that they can advise you on how a particular building would differ. The other thing too is... It's like the out of the ordinary. Chris was talking about a property which was a duplex. So it was quite a substantial home in the lower North Shore. And, and it was in the whole setup of that company that was really weird in terms mm. of all sorts of the actual law, the rules within the company. And so that's ultimately why the bank knocked it on the head because it was like, well, it's not typical. It's not, it doesn't function in much the same way as, as uh, like a, a Torrens title house would. So that was just too weird. Yep. But most, most apartment buildings that a company title don't have all that weirdness, right? Yeah. And so, but then you might find that, and so in a place like Elizabeth Bay, Rushcutters Bay, Potts Point, that sort of part of Sydney, there's a lot of company title building. So it's part, it's the norm in the area. Whereas I remember as a sales agent, I sold a couple of little company title apartments, red brick numbers, really horrible little things, really in retrospect, in Leichhardt, right? Now they were odd. They were weird, you know, that like, all the other red brickers in the area were all um, strata title and then there's a couple of this handful of odd ones that are company title and that became a problem because they're the odd properties out and you 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 know scarcity is a good thing in property but not weirdness there's mm. two different <laughs> it's weird scarcity and so you've got to be very careful that wherever you buy if you're going to buy a company title apartment and certainly in that sort of rush cutters elizabeth bay that area where they're commonplace mm. as long as they're not restrictive I would definitely continue to evaluate a property, even if it was company title for a client, whereas other areas I would probably rule it out. And because of that, in those areas that I mentioned where it's quite common to find company title, you will find that there's not necessarily a discount that yeah. you pay when you purchase them. They pretty much sell for the same price as Strata because they're roughly 50% stock. Whereas in those areas where they're an anomaly, there mm. is a discount there because you've got a smaller buyer pool. So mm. you've got less people that can compete for them. And then when you go to sell, the same thing is going to happen to you. So yeah. it's effectively a B or a C grade property, which we'll get to a little bit later here. And those properties don't generate the amount of competition. So, yes, sure, you get a discount when you buy, but you're also discounting your rate of growth. So that it's not the amount, it's not, um, you know, you discount in, discount out, and it doesn't matter. It does matter because that's exponential. It really is the compounding nature of that discount that is what's going to disadvantage you uh, down the track when you go to sell it. Yeah, I think it's really a good point. I mean, you need to be checking the strata report when you're buying, etc. But you know, if you're buying a company unit, you want to definitely be going through obviously all the minutes and really understand exactly what you can and can't do. Yeah, you know, some of the restrictions are actually quite good, you know, like if you can't rent it out or, you know, you can only rent it out for a certain period, etc. You know, if you want an owner-occupier building, which is, you know, de definitely going to drive prices up more than, say, just an investor building, um, you know, that might not be such a negative thing, but I agree with you, Veronica. If it's an area where you've got lots of company title, a lot of people are dealing with those issues, right? They've evaluated a property and thought about it. But if it's in an area where there's very limited amount and then people get hit with this company title, which is where your question is potentially coming from, um, you're a bit hesitant. And, you know, when you've got a bit of uncertainty, you're going to move on to the next property. And, you know, and speed and emotion is, is kind of the opposite of that, right? You get highly impulsive, et cetera. And so better prices will be for the properties that are easier to buy and, and, and removing any roadblocks is a good idea whenever you try to sell a property. And, you know, company title doesn't always have to say company title as well. We can't remember any clients changing from company to strata, um, but I know that it's possible. And so, you know, you might find that 
um, you know, you can sort of rally the troops, but, you know, that's nothing guaranteed. So I wouldn't go and buy a company profit uh, title and then think you can change it to Strata. I think it's wishful thinking. But, you know, they do change over time as well if, it, if it's an issue for a building. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would um, definitely, like Veronica said, if it's in a quality area where there's lots of company title, don't just say, I oh, can't buy that because it's company title. It's like when some clients say to me, I, I don't want to buy that because it's going to auctions. I don't want to go to any auctions. I'm like, well, you're probably never going to buy a property because, you know, in the hot markets, um, you know, it's just part of the way of doing business. Um, and so, yeah, don't put limits on yourself, like ruling out properties for, say, company title if it's in a good area and it's a good asset. Now, our second question is from Gary. He says, hi, Veronica and Chris, huge fan of the show. Thank you, Gary. My wife and I luckily FOMO'd into our first home late last year. He actually, I think he sent this. Yeah, I think I think he meant the end of 2020. Yeah. We might have had this question for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's located in one of the more affluent suburbs in the Shoalhaven region yep. of New South Wales. The property is three-bedroom, one-bath, built in the 80s, has nearly doubled in value in slightly under a year. Oh, my God, you've got to be happy with yourself there. 700K. Mm to 1.35 he did undertake 150k of renovations the dilemma we face is that this property is far from a grade and probably more akin to a dog (laughs) 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 being in a bushfire zone right my question is do we sell the house now okay apologies gary we should have probably read this out when you first sent it to us Uh, do we sell the house now while we're in this boom and upgrade to a superior property the price differential between ours and a b grade property in the area is not all that great at the moment the alternative is that we would make this house an Airbnb and buy another house, hopefully A grade in the near future. Gary, so this I'm is sorry we've only got to this one. now. Um, yeah. You know, if you have got something that's a little bit timely like this, um, probably don't send it to questions at the elephant of the room. Reach out to Veronica Call and us. I yeah. um, personally and um, chat to us about this because I feel like we're giving advice to Gary six months too late because the reality is when you say Shoalhaven, um, it's sort of that Nowra down to uh, Molly Mook sort of pocket, right? Um, That's Illawarra. I think Shoalhaven's a bit north of that. But it's, uh, it's no. south of Wollongong, is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you go like, so mm. Nowra, like Berry, Nowra, Kangaroo Valley, all the way sort of down to Molly Mook, et cetera. So I reckon it's probably something like a Huskinson or something like that, Gary, where you, <laughs> you bought a place, right? Um, now, my problem with this is this isn't commutable, right? So last year in 2020 and 2021, is this uh, location was, you know, highly pumped up in prices. It doubled, as you're sort of talking about, which not really, but, you know, minus off your reno and all that sort of stuff. But that area was really driven by return or worked from anywhere forever, right? Um, not the return to the the office. And that's what we're seeing in 2022. We're seeing very, very big differences in terms of our client's mentality and the return to work is very different. Some people are actually mandated to go back to the office for certain days and they cannot work from home on those days and it's really quite restrictive. So they lost all that flexibility they thought they had. Some are obviously able to work from home predominantly and just go in a couple of days a week. And my problem is, is that if one party in a high income couple, because that's what drives prices up, right? So if you can get two workers earning high incomes, that's the type of property that you want to own because that's the one who's got the biggest borrowing capacity, right? Longer term. So if you've got a high earning couple, if one of those has to go to the city more, at least weekly, I don't think now, um, you know, and on uh, Jervis Bay is possible because you're talking a three or four hour stint. So that'd probably be an overnight stay. Um, and I just don't think that's even possible on a weekly basis. Um, so I'm, I was always a little bit worried about second tier regions. I actually think that it was driven by lack of, properties on the market, but a huge increase in um, in demand. And I was always worried that, you know, especially the things that are B, Cs and Ds and the dogs, probably that's the D, um, they're the ones who are going to get hit the hardest when demand really slows down um, and potentially supply increases. Because like you're saying, you're thinking about selling, Gary. So are the, you know, the other people in that area that bought those houses for four, five, six hundred thousand, they did nothing for a long time, then they doubled. They're like, hang on a sec, let's get out of this and let's move further down south um, and, you know, put 500 grand into our super because that means a lot of money to them. And so you definitely would see a lot more supply hit the market in 2022. And you've had a massive decrease in demand because of return to work, higher interest rates, lower borrowing capacities. Um, and it might even be a little bit too late, Gary. You might find that the, the A-grades properties have really held their value because of lack of um, supply, lack of people selling, um, and and also that there are people still who are going down to the regions, but there's a much smaller buyer pool, um, and that's usually probably the people who are probably 
would go for the top end first and then they would price their way down. And so, um, and they're being much more picky this year. So Gary, I've probably, you're actually, it's a really good question. If you sent it to us last year, I actually would have said, absolutely. I think it's a good time to, to get out of B, C and D, take your money and run and get yourself into a, in a, a grade A asset. But I probably would have said also potentially try to buy before you sell, you know, and that, that mightn't have been great advice because, <laughs> um, you know, you potentially, you know, because the market moved so quickly over Christmas, um, you'd want to have maybe wrapped it all up in that sort of late last year rather than potentially trying to sell in the new year or something like that. And so, yeah, hopefully um, you did what you were thinking about doing, Gary, because I think you were on the right path. One thing I will say that we do actually promote, send your questions into elephant, sorry, questions at the elephant in the room. But of course, um, that is something we check periodically when we're looking to put together a, a Q&A episode. If you've got something more urgent, you can actually contact us via the website. Um, I do offer a limited amount of personal strategy sessions for people in this sort of dilemma. So just, you know, not a huge amount, but just... A, well worth reaching out if you have one of these questions what chris is sort of basically talking about in a boom everything goes up right and yeah. so the properties that rise the most in a boom are those sort of c grade properties they and when i say they rise the most it might sound like they perform the best but they're not they basically become attractive purely because everyone's desperate right and then the minute no one's desperate anymore then they just get dropped like hot potatoes so you know it may not be um too late to sell it might be too late to completely peak the mar you know pick the peak of the market mm. but the thing is you never can do that in advance anyway although you obviously thinking about it um we only ever know that markets peaked uh, you know when it's past tense so yeah. so and if it's only just peaked it's not too late you just got to make sure you don't price the property wrong the mm. really really important thing when you're selling a property in a transitioning market as we have now and you know it's interesting because just today i've been talking to buyers agents elsewhere in the country in some regional areas and and they've been saying yes the inquiry has been slowing down yes buyers are you know basically backing off taking the foot off the pedal and so there is, there's def definitely been a slowdown in price growth in uh, Sydney, and we can see it once again in the rear vision mirror. It appears that price prices peaked in January 2022. Um, and and it's, it appears that that is what's being experienced everywhere now. And so, you know, there will be a downturn and some areas and some types of properties will feel it much more keenly than others. And yeah, I do agree with sure. Chris, anything outside that two-hour commute from a major metropolitan area is going to, you know, feel more so than others. So you've got almost a slight double whammy of the location being just – and it depends where in Shoalhaven you are too. If you're in the top end, you're probably on the edge of that two-hour two commute to Sydney. But if you're in the bottom end, you, you're looking at four or five hours, you know, yeah. um, and the type of property itself. So it's not too late necessarily, but you've got to get the price right. Um, because what happens often in a transitional market, when it just peaks and tips over the peak, owners are continuing in their sort of growth mindset, shall we call it, where they're continuing to have this expectation that mark the prices will continue to climb and they're then out of step with the market. So when you're in step with the market, you can actually still price yourself more attractively than a lot of other properties that are on the market because if it takes those owners more time to catch up with what's happening. So it's not necessarily a bad time to sell. You can still sort of get in. But um, certainly take the advice, get a really good agent and just take their advice mm. in terms of how you set that price. Yeah, and also be a little bit careful on just the short, easy thinking, which is, oh, we'll just flip it to an Airbnb and keep it um, and, and not making a decision. There's, you know, there's opportunity costs that you'll you'll have from that. You know, you'll release equity. You'll, yes, you pay, it might not pay any couple of gains because it's your house. So that's a good thing, you know, and you'll use that money to potentially go and buy something else, which means you have lower debt on that. Um by keeping it, it might limit what you can spend on the next property and then you might buy another B, another C, dog. or D. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just, um, you know, think that through. What would be the impact of you keeping it versus whether you sell it on your borrowing capacity and then on your next decision? But also maybe don't fall for the fallacy of Airbnb a little bit, you know. Um, it might not rent as well as you think it's going to rent. You know, we always value, overvalue the things that we own. You know, you probably overthink how much people are going to spend on Airbnb and how often people are going to spend it. Um and, you know, and what they would do in winters and, you know, maybe where the borders are reopened and um, whether people go back to Italy like Veronica's doing in a few weeks' time. Um, 
and whether they stop going down the south coast because they've done that all in the last few years and um and so you, I, I think the airbnb thing um once you take off costs you take off cleaning airbnb itself i think 15 percent um and then you pay tax on that you know are you really making much from an income point of view especially when you don't need it from a personal point of view because you're probably going to buy something else down there um and so you're not even getting a lifestyle benefit for yourself um and so yeah just be careful with that as well um i think sometimes and, and this is not just for people thinking about airbnb it's some people saying well i don't want to sell it it's a good asset when it may not even be a great asset sometimes but i don't want to sell it because you should never sell property and i'm just going to go and buy the next property um you know, and I want to keep that property because I've usually got an emotional attachment to it and a fear of selling um, and not getting what I think it's worth. And so think through always potentially selling assets because you need to stay sort of pragmatic and um, constantly just make sure your strategies are in the right line. I love the fact that you suspect that it's a dog. <laughs> yeah. And so you're obviously prepared to face up to that. So good on you and do the make the hard call you know you know you know what you need to do go and mm. look into it um i do want one final thing gary i think you know you did mention there why you think it's because of the bushfire zone um you know i mean that could be because of the fear of bushfires but it also could be the, the building costs right um of having to build in those zones and mm. you know we're already worried about what's happened to building costs in 2022 let alone if you had to do those building costs amplified because of different materials and all that sort of thing so yeah, hopefully it's all worked out for you, Gary. And, um, yeah, if you've got any more questions, please just get in contact with us a bit directly. We'll be a bit quicker. <laughs> all right, third question from Kristen. Thank you so much for the podcast. It is so informative, interesting, and helpful. Thank you, Kristen. I have a few questions. A, one, I should say, how do you determine what an A-grade property is? B or two, are <laughs> A-grade properties only found in premium suburbs? How do you identify a premium suburb? And three, if I wanted to buy an A-grade investment property, a unit, for example, within 10Ks of the Sydney CBD, what property features would I look for and what would I avoid? Um, well, that's interesting. Let's sort of A-grade for me is basically a property that will always get interest from buyers regardless of market conditions. That's fundamentally what an A-grade property is. And you know, I first learned this as a sales agent when I would go to an appraisal and you you just know mm. as a sales agent when you're selling a property, you just know what's going to sell well and what isn't, right? So fundamentally flip that from a buyer's perspective, you want to buy something that is going to sell well and that means competing for it. You know, in most cases, it means competing for it um, because you want to make sure that when you go to sell it, um, other people will compete for it. And sometimes that means you can add value to a property that might not be competitive now because it needs some value add. Um, but generally speaking, it's because what it has is a character is a combination of characteristics that appeal to a broad cross-section mm. of local buyers. So so it's got the types of, you know, the architectural style, it's got good natural light, it's got good balance, it's got good, you know, floor plan, flow, garden, blah, 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 all the things that there are universal things such as natural light, but there are also spe location-specific things that buyers will value in one location more than they'll value in another yep. location or more than they'll value in another property in the same location. So you've got to really get that local mindset so you understand how to pick an A-grade uh, property in any particular location, which sort of leads on to the second part of the question, which is about location. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think if you change that grade A, B, C, D, I mean, you could think, you know, I just think about compromises. Like, you know, when someone looks at a property, how many compromises are they thinking in their head? Like, um, you know, is it a real compromise to live on this street? Well, yeah, it's quite noisy and it's dangerous for kids and things like that so that you know that would make it less um demand and less enticing in in down markets people would say no nah, i don't i'm just gonna be a bit more patient and wait for a better street or you know what's south facing and that's a bit of a compromise because we'd love a north facing rear so we get sun on the back of the property where we spend all our time on weekends rather than it being really cold in winter so it's a compromise so just think about it in terms of it's got lots of stairs is it sort of got a weird floor plan you know the you know, etc. that you can't potentially change and or it's expensive. And so just think about how many compromises. And if you go into a property and go, actually, the, it's, it's an amazing location, it's got great aspect, it's really great accessibility to all the lifestyle suburb in that suburb, it's not a rat run um, in terms of the road, etc. You'll also find that there's not many properties that turn over in the best streets that are uncompromised because the reality of people, people living in it, go, why would I leave this property when... I know it's one of the best properties in the suburb 
you know, because I've seen everything else come on the market. I've been living here for 10 years and nothing else makes me want to leave our property for. Um, and so you'll find that people have been living in the properties for 10, 20, 30 years. And so whenever they finally come up, there's a street right where I am and one property's come on the market in the last two years and this one street. It's a very good street and it's got amazing views. It's very quiet, cul-de-sac and you know, one property's come on, right? And um, lots of other streets like the busy road, there's like constantly properties on the market. Mm. They're constantly turning over. The same properties have turned over multiple times. And so, because everyone just knows that's the best street or one of the best, right, that you want to be on. So, um, yeah, I think that's how you really know a great property. And then I think you're right. It has to be that real market fit because if the market is, say, a young family market with young kids versus, you know, a downsizer market or a cashed up retiree or a holiday home or a you know, you could have a beautiful house, but if it doesn't really suit the market that drives values in that suburb, um, and then, yeah, it could be a A-grade property for the right, but for the wrong target market. Um, <laughs> and because they're just not living in, they're just not moving to that area, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely need that local market fit. Um, what was the second part to the question, Veronica? Well, also on the location, I'll say that, you know, a lot of people sort of I know when they hear me talking about A, B and C grade properties, they think, oh, well, you, it's got to be like the most expensive house in a really good suburb. Well, not, not necessarily. No. There's different segments in every market. And so it's really looking at each price segment and each market segment, if you like, it's what's, what's the most desirable in those those segments. So, and and for an area to be A grade, it really does have to offer that, you know, proximity to lifestyle, proximity to employment, um, a good socioeconomic um, so score, so we uh, in Homebar Academy, we talk about Kent's measure that he loves from the ABS called the CFA scores. Basically, it, it's measuring, ABS actually comes out with these scores for every suburb, which basically measures socioeconomic advantage and disadvantage. And so you, every single suburb in the country has a score. And so it's the elements that go into the makeup of that score. You know, so it is, it's, it's that, it's the economic drivers. So you need all those things, but they, an area with all those drivers will actually bring people in and got the income to then be able to support yep. all the things that get built and the things, the amenities that um, are available in that area to support the people who got the money. You know, it's this sort of endless cycle, really. And so you are looking for attractive, accessible, you know, lifestyle type uh, locations. Any sort of location where people only go to if they can't afford better. You know, and look, let's face it, there's all tiers of affordability, if you like, yeah. right throughout the country. But, you know, like I can go to, um, I don't want to sort of name suburbs right at the minute, but basically if you, if the poor cousin, you know, if the poor cousin is an up and coming and might one day become desirable, that's fine. And we've talked about bridesmaid suburbs before. Um, but if the poor cousin is poor cousin because fundamentally it's too far away, it's got a really bad transport it's got polluted it's you know it's yep. got it's got no sporting field you know it's got none of the things that people want people only go there when in a hot market because they're they're compromising on all the wrong things then it's the equivalent of buying on a main road in a in a, in a brilliant suburb mm. you know so yep. it, it's really so how do i identify a premium suburb it's really about looking do people want to live there you know, and would they live there if they had other choices? And that's fundamentally what it comes down to. Do they choose to live here regardless? If there's hundreds of properties on the market, would they still want to live here and would they still want to buy that? Yeah, um, I think it's like really right. I think you're right. I think it's exactly what it not hasn't, it doesn't have to be in the most premium parts of our capital city or the grade eight suburbs. You can get um, grade eight property in regional locations, but you have to think about it. The premium locations would be whatever, let's say Albury, right? Um, if people are doing well in Albury financially, you know, let's say they're a young couple and they're doing better than average incomes and they want, uh, they're being quite aspirational and they want to give their kids the best life and they want to live in the city and get all the lifestyle benefits. What part of Albury do they want to be, right? What type of property do they want to own in Albury? You know, if they, for example, business owners, if you're doing well in Albury and you're making millions of dollars a year in business, what would you really want? Maybe you want something in the town centre, a really big heritage house, um, or maybe you want an acreage on the, you know, five, 10 acres just outside of town. Um, and so it's just knowing where the people who are doing well within that um, location where do they really want to live and where are they going and competing on property and, and paying overs to get into that suburb? Because you'll also find that people don't want to leave those pockets as well. So you have a shrinking supply, but you have a growing demand because there is scarcity because there's only so many big heritage homes in near the town centre in Albury. I'm just picking a random place. Um, <laughs> and so it's where people are doing 
well financially are moving to because of their lifestyle benefit and because it's an aspirational sort of move rather than driven by affordability. Because when people go there for affordability and then they do well financially, then they get out. Um, mm. And then they move back into a suburb that they want to be. So whether it was or the western if, suburbs of Sydney, if the market falls, if you go somewhere because of affordability and the market as a whole falls, they're going to go back to where they really prefer to be because that becomes more affordable. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, potentially, as in you're saying the aspirational suburb would also fall. Yeah. You're saying? Yeah. yeah I mean, under those see, circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the challenge with that is that when people go to an f- affordable location, you're actually it's quite dangerous. And this, because if you go there and then you want to upgrade into, an, a, say, a better suburb, the stepping stone actually gets bigger on you. You know, the mm. gap, the property you could have purchased today, maybe it was a bit more of a stretch. Um, so you might have had to spend, let's call it a million versus 800,000, let's just call it, um, to get into the better street or the better location. In that down market, the 800 does fall, you know, it goes to 700, but the million might only drop to, you know, 950 and that gap gets bigger, plus you've got stamp duty and selling costs. And so uh, it's one of those challenges where, um, you know, we see clients who, oh, I really just want a new property and, you know, we, we don't want to do a reno and we're just going to go and buy this house and land package and we're just going to buy it because we want to live there. Um and then you know that they've got a really strong trajectory and you know potentially they're going to, you know, get outgrow that. Maybe they want simplicity because of young kids and then they're going to want to upgrade into a better suburb because you know they're going to pay that mortgage off really fast and you can just see the writing on the wall. Then they're going to go and upgrade. Um, there's a client I know at the moment doing this, um, you know, somewhere near Melbourne and I was trying to drum it into them, you know, like they've already signed up to this house and land package that, you know, you would have been much better just buying this. Oh, and they were trying to justify it to themselves. And so... Yeah, that, that's that's probably the answer to the question. It doesn't have to be the most expensive parts, but it does usually mean that you're in the most more expensive parts of whatever pocket or location you're going to be because those things are already priced in. You're coming late to that party, right? You're not all of a sudden figuring out, you know, the first person that's doing well financially wanting to move to that pocket of a city. Like this is ingrained in the growth of that location that that's the better part to be because of the lifestyle benefits. Um, and so you can't all of a sudden just, you know, get a grade A property and then get it at a grade B or C price. Like it, you're going to have to pay more for it straight away. Um, the third part of your question, if you want to buy a grade investment property in Sydney, um, look, I and it had to be an apartment. I personally try to get into, you know, three beds are usually probably out of reach, you know, and there's not that many of them. So if you could, yeah, great, but you might not be able to have the budget to get into a good three bed. But I'd probably try, really try to encourage you to get into a, a bigger, you know, two bed if you can for your budget. Um, and in an area where houses are really expensive and where high-income young families are forced to sort of move to um, because they can't afi- afford to buy a house in a location they really want to be. And um, so it's areas where they're not usually building many apartments. Um, so it might be like Mossman or Fairlight or Balmain or the Eastern Beaches or Bellevue Hill or Rose Bay, Double Bay, and, you know, other parts of the Northern Beaches, et cetera, where, you know, the the great lifestyle, um, houses are really expensive and people, you know, families go, well, I don't want to move to, you know, out west. I don't want to move really far north to Hornsby or, or uh, the Shire or Central Coast of Wollongong. Um, I just want a really nice apartment somewhere in a community sort of family location around the city um, that's got great schools um, and I can easily get to the city. And when my friends and family come from overseas or interstate, um, you know, we can access all the lifestyle benefits of the city. And so that's what I would really encourage you. Get an apartment that really suits the the family market. Um, even if you're not potentially going to go down that path, I think you'll find you get much better growth than if an apartment that's really tailored towards couples and, and singles and um, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. You've got to go for scarcity. So in what Chris is talking about, those sort of areas, there's quite a lot of apartments, a lot of those suburbs, but they're established. You know, they're not um, – there's no more sites to build big apartment blocks yeah. in those specific suburbs anymore. So you've got to avoid, you know, being on the edge of all of that. 
But you also got to look at within each complex or within each building, you got to look at what's the good apartment within each building yeah. because, you know, there's, there's, in fact, I've written quite a few blogs on this over the years on my Good Deeds website. But, there, you know, because there, there really is, you know, the building could be great. It could be really well built. Could it be really good? Um, you know, real well run. You know, lovely gardens, blah blah blah. But like, the only only a small percentage of them actually face have the best aspect, for instance, yeah. or the best floor plan. Um, you know, so there's there's you really do need to be very hypercritical as to make sure that you get the best one in the building. Because you know, if ever yeah. there is a fire sale, which I mean, look, there shouldn't be one unless. Um, everyone's bought at exactly the same time and in the same financial position and in the, under the same financial pressures at the same time, which is one of the reasons we advise you not to buy into a building that's brand new. Um, you know, but if there ever is ever a fire sale, which we don't see in these in these established areas anyway, but if there was, you want your property to stand out and you want yours to rise to the top of the the, uh, the preference list of buyers. Oh, this is maybe even a fire sale. It could just be like... I was being facetious. Yeah, but I mean, like, it, just, it could just be... Um, Someone just had to sell quickly and didn't know what they do. I used a poor agent and just didn't get what they should have got for it. The problem with that is that let's say there's six apartment blocks and yours is the worst two, one of the worst two, right? And then one of the better ones, you know, the first, second or third sells at 1.1 million and you think, well, hang on a sec, mine should be worth 1.1 million. So one of the better ones and then a valuer comes in and or the new, and you want to sell and then you've got to potentially sell it cheaper than that because everyone says, well, why would I pay that when that one sold? And you're like, well, that sold under... They didn't know what they were doing, and they didn't. Know, and then that whole story gets lost, right? Because the buyers just see the number. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, you want to protect yourself. Also, protect yourself from bank vowels because the value mm. will look at it and go, "Well, that's one point one. I've got, this is um is inferior to that, so I've got to go under that." Um, so, absolutely. Also, you never know when someone else in the block is going to be selling, mm. right? And you know, you've got a campaign and two apartments are selling in the same building. And you're like, "Bugger!" And yours is the worst one. All your buyers are going to flock to the good one, right? Um, and uh, so that could affect you. We had a client buy um, an apartment in the beaches on the weekend, for example. So premium suburb, absolutely one of the best ones in the block, you know, north-facing aspect, a little garden, um, perfect for a family, super scarce, you know, a little brick building on a quiet street, you know, parking. Um, and so that's all the things you really want is, and, and also the downsides of markets, I think, can be easily mm. forgotten about. So you got, um, if it suits families it's probably going to suit couples right it's going to suit singles and the same but if you could also the downsides are a bit of a different um and older kids are a different market as well you know in a two-bedroom apartment might be okay with two young kids till i don't know exactly the age i'll figure that out in probably five ten years time um but you know at some point they you know the kids probably want their own room and say so may but but you know one child it could probably last a long time um but two teenage or a teenager child in a small apartment um two of them you know it's probably a limited runway right but, I mean, the downsides of the market is a great market, you know, especially if they are moving from a, you know, a, a big expensive house in Mossman or Fairlight or Balmain or Rose Bay. They just want something lock up and leave so they can do more traveling and they don't need the big house and the maintenance. Um, but they, they've got, you know, peculiar needs, right, Veronica? What are the, some of the the things that they really go for <laughs> well they definitely like ease of access they don't like lots of stairs you know yeah. so but they what they do like they actually do like to have kid friendly as well because by that stage they might be thinking of having their grandkids come and stay for them so yeah. that for that sort of young family um segment uh you know wanting that outdoor space wanting to entertain wanting still to be close to amenities and everything mm. is actually quite similar really and mm. and but also that desire to be kid friendly but definitely as people are downsizing, they are more interested in mobility and accessibility. Um, and so that sort of gets added to the list of, of would likes. And so therefore, that's why I think really having that um, over or garden apartments with it sort of that, yeah. that Gar that uh, outside space connected to the living uh, internal living areas is really really hard to come by and mm. and definitely very valuable. So anyway, so that's that's the sort of thing you've got scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. I think that's the really important message to hammer home when it comes to apartments. Our fourth question is from Nicole, one of my uh, erstwhile favourite topics, hate topics, land tax. The thresholds and rates, from what I understand, have not been altered. That's three thresholds increased or rates decreased for a very long time. Bear in mind that land tax is a state-based tax, not a federal tax. Uh, when originally set, presumably it was set so that there was a gap between land value and reaching the first threshold. So there is a, there is a, um, 
land tax threshold that you can own up to a certain amount of value of unimproved land before the land tax kicks in. Now it seems just about impossible for that to happen purely because the thresholds have not been adjusted for many years. Land tax is a killer for a lot of property owners. Is anyone interested in lobbying against land tax? Share investors don't have to pay this sort of tax and property owners already pay stamp duty as well. Well, you won't get any argument from me on that. What are your thoughts on it, Chris? All right. I mean, I guess you're not paying land tax on your home, right? And this is uh, something to really consider, right? When you are buying investment properties, it's a cost. And, you know, we are, especially in the last few years, we could sort of see the writing was on the raw with rates and, you know, clients would come to us and let's buy an investment property and go, well, let me just get to know your situation first. What are you doing with your home? You know, are you really happy there? You know, do you need to do a renovation? You know, would you move, do you ultimately want to move to a different suburb, et cetera? Um, because sometimes it's better just to focus on accruing more uh, assets that are under your home, you know, like, and that's a tax free, plus you don't have to worry about land tax, et cetera. So um, you can do things to avoid it. You know, you so you can go to different states and things like that and, um, you know, and buy quality assets that way, et cetera. So you're probably not going to get me on a lobby list anytime soon. I think that, and also to get these things changed, I think the government's not, the investors don't ever really get uh, much in the conversation when house prices and property prices are going through the roof, right? So you're paying a bit of land tax, but hopefully land's a good thing because land's what goes up in value. You're paying because you're owning the right portion um, of your assets in mostly land. Um, and so your capital gains are, are offsetting um, any potential land tax. Um, and then it's tax deductible anyway for you. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be... Uh, too concerned around land tax. I'd be focused on making sure you're just using that wisely, right? I'm not paying a lot of land tax. I'm not paying a lot of interest. I'm not paying a lot of maintenance. I'm not having issues with tenants. I'm not, you know, but I am getting a lot of capital growth and I'm getting a lot of capital growth. And I, But yeah, I'm paying a bit of land tax. So that's how I would be thinking about it. I wrote an article on this some years ago because I was, uh, you know, just increasingly incensed about it. And um, I'll put the link in the show notes. And when I was researching it, because I've got a, a friend of mine who's a, a tax specialist and she was basically ranting at me. Well, she was ranting at me while I was ranting at her. We were ranting at each other. <laughs> She's basically saying that, you know, land tax is a fair tax. And um, and I'm like, why is it fair? And, and you know, back in the UK, I don't know when it was, there was a thing called a window tax. Did you hear about that, Chris? So landowners do tend to get hit. Uh, property owners, I should say, do tend to get hit. We're a bit of an easy target when it comes to yeah. taxing, right? Exactly. So, but at the same time, you could argue, well, we're privileged, so we should be taxed. And and so there will be people, in fact, our next question is from someone who may well, uh, you know, argue that. So there's a philosophical as well as a social sort of question around this. My issue with land tax as it currently stands, and that is not a broad-based land tax uh, in New South, New South Wales. There's talk about replacing stamp duty with a broad-based land tax. And that's where everyone who owns land pays uh, a smaller amount than is currently being paid. So land tax is currently paid in New South Wales anyway by a small percentage of property owners because it's only paid if it's an investment property and it's over a certain threshold of value. And you're right, those those thresholds have really not changed. So therefore, it's pretty hard to be under it, put it that way. And so therefore, almost means anyone with an investment property in New South Wales is paying land tax. Yeah. However, I could have a $2 million house sitting on land. I could also have a $2 million apartment, which has the same sort of capital growth potential as the $2 million house, depending on where I bought it, what it was. Yeah. You, Go back to that previous question. If I really bought an A-grade asset, there was an apartment. So I could be looking at the same sort of capital growth rates for the two different assets. One's on more land than the other, and therefore I get hit with a land tax bill if I have the house, but I don't get hit by the land tax bill if I have the apartment. And I'm still a property owner, and I'm still uh, you know, achieving the same sort of rate. So whilst people say, you know, economists love to say that land tax is a fair tax, they say it's a fair tax because it doesn't impact people's behaviour. I guess I'd argue that it does. But whereas stamp duty is a transactional tax, so therefore it affects people's behaviour. That's their argument, right? I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I think there's more to be said there. But I do see it as, as a, an unfair tax. And I agree that there are investors in other assets that don't get hit with such tax. And I just think that because property is that static thing that's easy to pin it down if you own it, and and it's a lumpy asset that you can't get rid of quickly if you get hit with a big bill. And when prices are rising, I, and I know myself when I've been hit personally with big land tax bills in previous years, and I've I've 
sort of softened the blow by sitting down and really looking at my capital growth over that period of time thinking, okay, it's all right, it's all right, I'm still, I'm still ahead, you know. But, I mean, sometimes it's pretty, pretty horrible. But when prices are falling, you don't get comforted by that. You know, you're paying land tax whether you get income on that property or not, right? You, It's not based on the income you get. It's based on the value of the property. Um, so it, value yeah. of the land, exactly, yeah. Sorry, the value of the land, yeah. And also because you simply can be more strategic around it and buy property in different states and you avoid paying land tax uh, to, a, to a great degree by doing such a thing. So there's ways in which you can get around it, which is why I still don't think it's a fair tax. But anyway, that's, that's my thoughts. I'll lobby, but I, I don't th- think I- anyone wants to hear. <laughs> no, no, I think if anything, the... The momentum's the other way, right? You know, we've got uh, increasing um, CGT. We've got potentially getting rid of negative gearing. You know, I, I don't think the change like um, reducing land tax, um, which it potentially mean for investors, uh, is potentially going to something they're going to want to encourage, right? It's not going to um, win boats. <laughs> no, exactly. And so I think you just got to sort of take this one on the chin, just say it's, you know, one of the costs of playing the game and hopefully your benefits are bigger than the costs. Um, you know, they do want to encourage more home ownership, right? It's anything they can do to sort of discourage investors. But I think it's an important point. You know, if you're paying a lot of land tax, you're paying a lot of expenses and you're not getting capital growth, then you need to be factoring it in. You need to know mm. your cash flow. You need to know that you're getting a benefit for this. So hopefully it's um, enough to, uh, you know, wake some people up that maybe they shouldn't own this. And then that probably goes back on the market and, you know, and that's a negative, right? We do need investors, which is what we'll talk about in the next point, um, because we do need rental stock. But you know, I do think the writing's on the wall that, you know, it's going to get harder for investors to make money. And, and I think that's why it's so important that you're buying quality assets, which is what we, we talk about all the time. 100%. So our fifth question is slightly controversial. It's from Jim. He says, I've been listening to the podcast as a prospective first home buyer and, been re- and have really enjoyed the detailed information in many of the episodes and we appreciate that. However, Jim wasn't so impressed with one of our <laughs> interviews late last year where we talked about challenges faced by investors. A little, I think he thought we were doing a bit why it was me. In fact, he said it was... I quote, a real disappointment that reeked of privilege. Some of the concerns he had are below. I'll quickly run through them. Uh, Tenants in Australia have such limited rights compared to most of the developed world. How can we be shocked that state labour governments are attempting to pass legislation that would support working class people? Um, Next point is, it's not as if people don't have other options to build wealth for retirement. Super is one of the best pension programs in the world. Investment properties aren't an essential purchase. Proposed legislation in Victoria to capture a portion of the value created by rezoning is a no-brainer. The state should not facilitate significant transfer to wealth to private landowners and not share these funds with the community. I'm absolutely 100% in agreement with you there, Jim. Um, There was a discussion around the need for increasing housing supply to facilitate affordability, but then rezoning projects that create supply were criticised when it affects your clients. Uh, rezoning on large mixed-use sites create jobs, services, open space and can create quality amenities for nearby property owners. And his last point, or actually second last point, build to rent is a proven and efficient typology to provide secure tenure for renters at an affordable rate. We can all invest in these developments through REITs and take advantage of the tax benefits provided. And so he's finished his uh, his email to us. It's not really a question, but it's he said that some level of critical analysis of ingrained attitudes around property investing, consideration of equality amongst our communities, and discussion with conflicting ideas would contribute greatly to the podcast. So I do hope he's still listening. Yeah. What do you think of that, Chris? Oh, Jim, you're, you're bang on, to be honest. And we hopefully, if you've um, been listening to lots of our episodes, you can um, see that we try to understand, you know, multiple, um, everyone's affected by this, right? You know, you've got renters. Um, and I, I like my answer to that previous question is, you know, I don't think the, you know, the rights of investors, um, you know, should be thought about first. I think it's society as a, as a, as a whole. And um, I think you're right around the tenants. I think it's pretty... Um, you know, you're very lucky to get more than a 12-month lease. I think your ideas around sort of increasing supply and, you know, the getting value capture with developments is is definitely, and we've covered that in episodes. We've done episodes on build to rent. I've got um, Adam from Mervac. He started his own company, build to rent now. Um, you know, when before anyone was really talking about it, and we absolutely love that sort of model. Um, I think the superannuation should be investing in build to rent and creating, um, you know, thousands and thousands of home that, you um, could be rented to key workers, you know, could be impact investing, you know, our $3 trillion of super could be doing. I think you're right there. So absolutely. I think you've got to be really careful with the whole investor debate. You've got to really think about society and the problems 
um, as a whole. But I think that I guess you were talking about was, you know, um, representing the investors and thinking about the investors, um, you know, his sort of uh, community, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I can see what you were sort of you're saying in that question. And hopefully, hopefully, Jimmy, you see that we do tackle this at many different angles. You know, we've done lots on homelessness. We've done lots on um, you know, lots of different elements, uh, you know, building issues, et cetera, and all the impacts it has in society. Uh, and we understand that these issues keep getting worse, not better. I think um, growing inequality is an issue and, and um, not Massively. just in Australian society, but, but it's certainly a big issue here. And, and I think to financial inequality and, and a lot of people have came out and said that COVID has actually exacerbated and widened that gap between those that have and those that have not. We do, and, and a secure home or secure roof over your head is a basic human right. And I do actually think that one of the issues that's really coming to the fore with the whole afford- the discussion around the affordability crisis uh, in this country is that government has to step up. And I think what's happened in you know years gone by, the government really has sort of passed that buck a little bit yeah. in many regards to the mum and dad or the private in, uh, individual investors. Yeah. And, you know, I think they've been thrown under the bus in much the same way that first home buyers have been thrown under the bus when I when it comes to incentivize, being incentivized to buy yeah. crap property, you know, yeah. that a lot of investors have really been heavily and negative gearing favors them and encourages them to buy crap property and first home bo- um, first home owner grants that specify you need to buy brand new, do the same thing for first home buyers. So in a way, investors are, you know, just as caught out effectively by government's um, inability to really tackle the um, issue with, you know, the availability of rental stock anyway um, and actually provide a solution there. They've really relied on on individual investors. So you can't sort of then turn around necessarily and go, oh, all investors are evil. But at the same time, there is a mindset around there that, you know, like I just want to get ahead and I don't care about anybody else. So, that you know, we do have to balance that. I think what's been interesting as well, is that if you look at the um, the market turndown that happened at the you know from 2017, that was brought about. We've talked about it many many times. The podcast around the tightening up of investor lending, and that at that point, I think it was investor lending. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was around about 55 percent of all mortgages at the time. Yeah, it, it was ridiculously high. I mean, it was too high. And this there obviously was a you know that was a situation. Where, yeah, there's just far too much investor participation in the marketplace and prices were driven upwards by investors and that's clear. This latest boom has been driven by owner-occupiers, not by investors. So I think yeah. that I think it's not helpful to the whole argument to say, oh, it's investors' fault that prices have been rising. It's not helpful also to blame negative gearing because, you know, there's been economists that have actually been in, in favour of trashing negative gearing have done studies on it and come out and said look it makes a minimal difference to actual housing prices i do actually agree i think negative gearing is also in a way a trap for investors because quite often they'll buy crap property so that they can negatively gear it so it's a it's an issue there i don't think you know i'm for Mm. negative gearing but i actually think the way in which we we it's operated in this country i think it can be done a lot better and i think Mm. there can be restrictions to you know, extra hurdles put in place to to minimise the amount of um, investment in property, you know, in an, in a way that disadvantages first home buyers or gives investors an unfair advantage. So I think there is yeah. a lot of things that can be done, but the problem is at the moment it's all vote grabbing and there's very little in investment from government in the actual housing stock and also in in quality of supply. I mean, the answer is supply, but of course, we don't want to encourage first-time buyers or investors for that matter to go rushing out to buy brand new stock. So it's yep. a bit of a, you know, I'm caught in a rock and a hard place when it comes to actually uh, that problem because of course, governments have been incentivizing first-time buyers all right, but every time they come up with a new initiative, then that basically increases the amount of people out there trying to buy, which increases demand and it does nothing to actually improve the supply side of the equation. Yeah, the problem with supply is you've got to go and build it, right? It takes years and years, and we've got a strong growing population, both through um, just natural demographics. That's why we've done lots of episodes on demographics. It's such such a key thing to understand, you know. Um, we've got Simon coming on next week again from um, Demographics Institute. And you know, so you've got all these people sort of getting older, ha- getting married, you know, having kids, um, you know, divorces happening, you know, et cetera, at the other end of the scale. Um, and so you've got uh, this this greater need for housing, right? Um, 
And then you've got migration. We've got a very strong desire to keep importing talent around the world and keeping, um, and you know, and students, et cetera. So now we've got a very fast growing population. We've got very strong demographics as well. And we need to provide a lot of housing for all those households in the future. And um, you look at the, all our builders right now, we're struggling to get materials, we're struggling to build this. And the problem is I think the government has been a 20 or 30 year problem. They've been building poor, the wrong type of properties, poorly built in key locations um, and have not built the real stuff that we need for our demographics. And um, that's the real issue. We've got a supply problem um, of the stuff that people really want and in the locations that they really want. Um, and that stuff's not going to change overnight. And then you've got overlays with NIMBYs, et cetera. So it's a massive, massive um, problem here. And investors are only um, part of that. But, you know, the government's obviously responsible a lot for it, I think, like Veronica said, um, for not taking action. And, you know, that's what, you know, unfortunately they're only, because they get stuck with this big problem. They're like, well, let's just win some votes the next election. Oh, let's access your super or, you know, let's do a 10,000, you know, 5% deposits and all that sort of stuff because it just sort of puts a Band-Aid on it um, to sound like they're doing something. But, you know, it's a, it's a massive issue, this, that we all know about. One other thing that he did mention, he's talked about uh, rezoning and, and one, uh, 100% I agree that, you know, if there because the single biggest um, point at which a property owner or a landowner makes the greatest gain is when zoning is changed or greatest loss, I guess, if it changes the other, you know, in, a, in mm. a disadvantageous way. Um, and I agree that that should be shared with the community because they, they shouldn't benefit just because the... Um, you know, the rules have changed effectively. I mean, they speculate, sure, they're going to get some payment for that. But, it, yeah, anyway, let's not get into the nitty-gritty of that. But but, but talking about the NIMBYism, now, this is a – this is a, maybe we should have an entire episode on this, really, because, you know, I don't think it's fair to say, well, go, you know, go through a heritage suburb, for instance, which has got loads of character and appeal and, and high land values and go, okay, well, from now on you can mow down all those big houses on the big blocks of land and put four apartments on each one or four towns on each one they're still going to be expensive even if you could do that right they're going to be expensive because land's expensive there you know what i mean like it's just sort of it, it, it doesn't solve the problem it sounds really convenient to go oh you know you know those people in mossman they'd never let a high-rise apartment building be built well that this isn't the available land to build it you know they're not the site the sites don't exist so but i do know that there's an element of nimbyism in some areas i get that but at the same time and there's always resistance to change that's human nature but i also think that in some areas you know i think you just have to accept some places are going to be expensive and some places already have basically nearly everything developed and they're not going to change an awful lot and i don't think it is right that you should you know, impose almost communist rule on, on certain areas and say, right, that's it, I'm going to buy it up because everyone should be equal. You know, I, I, I'm i a yeah. capitalist with a heart, I guess, <laughs> and I, you know, and I think that we should have the ability to aspire to things in this in this country as well. So, you know, I'm getting a bit of a messy argument I think, here. I think, what you're, I think you're right. Like I think, you you know, we, we need these sort of sanctuaries, these pockets, these lifestyle parts that make the city, it's part of the culture and, you know, housing and beautiful pockets and greenery and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I think, and maybe down the line, they are top of the list, but there's so many other easy wins, right, of where they could yeah. be building, um, you know, along the busy roads and certain pockets. And so that un unutilized space is what they should be doing and rezoning and saying, right, let's really focus on building some more houses here and let's deliver. Uh, and I think there's so many opportunities they need to go to first before they get to the sort of more premium suburbs. So we're running out of land left, you know. Um, <laughs> we've got to rezone all these suburbs and um, it's free for all from now on just to provide some housing. And that's the issue. I think it's going to be kicked down the, the line many, many um, decades before you start to see the most premium suburbs, heritage overlays get removed and everyone can sort of oh. knock down. I just think that it doesn't help to look at those who do have, right, and and say, well, I don't have because they yeah. do have. And I think yeah. that's really where I'm getting at with this. You know, like let's just focus on what can be done to give people a safe, you know, quality uh, experience, a quality home experience. And I, I don't think we're doing enough. I, I really don't. Um, but I don't think it 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 doesn't help us just to to put our attention on on that small segment of the market. Anyway, yeah. on that note, hopefully, Jim, you feel that we've done. Um, you know, your question or your comments, at least some justice. And we certainly don't shy away from, from being challenged as well. And we appreciate that you sent that through to us. I mean, Jim, it's, I mean, that's why we did the episode on the Felinski report. That's why we get all the economists in there to debate, you know, things like taxes, you know, Brendan Coates and um, Salt Lake, Lake. And, and we, we have these big conversations about big points is because we know it's such a complex issue and it's all these in intricate parts that affect things. And, um, 
yeah, hopefully um, you keep enjoying listening. In fact, Avashi, we've put a summary in the show notes of some of the discussions that we've had around affordability in the wider context, and I think there's something like about 15 episodes in there. So if you yeah, really are you interested in this, <laughs> and that's without digging too deeply with all those economists' yeah. uh, interviews, if you do, where it's been the main topic of the interviews, the episodes. So if you do yeah. really you know, want to dig deep on this topic, um, go and check those episodes out. Awesome. Thanks so much for today, Veronica. It's, um, if you've got more questions, send them through, but if they're a little bit more topical and timely, um, and you want to get our advice on them or just our thoughts, um, yeah, definitely get in touch. And if not, we'll answer them on the future episodes. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.